In recent years, humanitarian responses have been complicated by compounding crises, such as climate change, epidemics, and pandemics, and complex conflicts. In an ever-changing humanitarian space, we ask, what does the safety and security of aid workers look like? And what might it look like in the future? I'm Tara Arthur from the Global Interagency Security Forum. And each episode, I'll be speaking to guests about topics such as the localization of aid, the ups and downs of community acceptance, and the role of digital security in the modern era. Join me as we unpack the changing face of humanitarian security risk management. Hello, and welcome to the GISF podcast. Today, we're talking about partnerships and crisis. Today, we have Leah Mutar from the Global Interagency Security Forum, who's going to share some insights with us. Hi, Tara. Hey, Leah. I thought it might be great if you could share a little bit about who you are within GISF and share a little bit about the work you have going on. Sure. Um, so I'm currently working as research advisor uh, at GISF. I started uh, in August 2019. My role within GISF is kind of to bridge um, research and practice. So the aim of, the, of my role is to ensure that NGO practices are informed by evidence and to maximize uh, the impact of the learnings brought about uh, by research. Um, so in the first place, I oversee the development of various research projects uh, that investigate security issues and challenges that aid workers and organizations face. Um, so in the past, Joseph has investigated the impact of gender and faith on security risk management, for instance, and we're looking at new issues around access and acceptance. Um, but a second role of the, of the job is also to ensure that these learnings have a positive impact. And generally, that goes through creating good practices guide um, that provide adaptable tools for NGOs to better protect the people they work with. So, yeah, we've been working on guide on managing sexual violence um, against aid workers in the past or how to estimate the cost of security, for instance. And finally, there is also yeah, a coordination aspect, uh, which is about linking up with universities, think tank and other stakeholders, given that GISF is an open forum and tries to believes in, in learning across sectors. You have a very important role. So thank you for all you're doing to contribute to the work in this sector. Um, if you could, I think it would be great if you can share a little bit more about the work GISF is doing around partnerships um, and how that research has come to be. You talked a little bit about your, your work um, in the overall research portfolio, but definitely give us a little taste of what's going on in the partnership side of things. For sure. Um, very, very enthusiastic about this project. Um, so yeah, currently we're editing um, our last research project on partnerships and security risk management from the local partners perspective. Um, and by partners, I mean partnership between uh, international NGOs and local or national uh, NGOs. So in 2012, GSF had already published a paper on international agencies working with local partners. This first paper, uh, which was really interesting and I really recommend it to, to everyone, uh, investigated more the responsibility of international organizations, the challenges they face uh, while trying to support local partners, 
and provided insight into how to improve the support uh, provided. Mm. However, this first paper was mostly, mostly built on interviews with international representatives and so was kind of influenced by the perspective of international NGOs. Um, and even though it was really interesting, we thought that to have a complete analysis and to have the other side of the picture, we really needed to only focus on also the perspective of local NGOs and to ensure that their insights were included. And so that's what uh, this project I'm currently editing uh, is about. And the research project involved a team of four researchers. Um, they created a global survey, which was disseminated in four languages, uh, was answered by over 100 90 participants uh, from local and national organizations. They also conducted more than 70 interviews with local partners and did field research in four countries, Myanmar, Colombia, Ethiopia, and Syria, um, although the study was conducted from Gaziantep in Turkey. That's fabulous. So just really digging into the local voices, which is so important. So Digging a little bit more into that, can you share some of the, the highlights of the specific issues that you're tackling within the research? There are so many. Um, we see that the first yeah, main highlight is that security risk management is often neglected in partnerships. Uh, mm -hmm. That there is, even though there are some cases where um, partnerships really discuss and support each other in terms of managing security risk. Uh, most of the time, security risk management is simply not discussed um, between partners. It comes from both sides. Uh, I mean, there are many explanations for this. Uh, local partners fear that they will lose funding if they mention uh, their security needs. And international partners generally focus a lot on fiduciary uh, and legal risk, uh, mm -hmm. for instance, to comply with counterterrorism legislation. So that was the main finding of the research, the absence of actually systematic uh, addressing of security risk management of local partners. Beside the absence of dialogue, we see that there are still enduring misunderstandings around mm -hmm. the risk that local partners face, that in many cases, INGOs assume uh, rather than ask local partners about the risk that they face. And, and that really creates a, a lot of issues because then the support provided is not adequate. Because if you do capacity building on context analysis, for instance, for local partners who are born and live all their life in the context, it's not gonna be the most relevant uh, training for them, for instance. Receiving some support in terms of um, structures and structuring security risk processes this is much more interesting for local partners, for instance. And finally, the last point that I could highlight is the misunderstanding also that exists around risk transfer within partnerships. Their risk transfer is really not a term that is well understood, although it has been used a lot and is still being used a lot within the localization agenda. Still not very well understood. So Leah, that's really interesting. Can you break down a bit more what risk transfer is? For sure. Um, I'd say risk transfer generally in the way it is understood, uh, it's not, there is no one commonly agreed definition. Generally risk transfer is understood as a linear top-down transfer of a given set of risk. So for instance, in Syria, 
when it becomes too dangerous or simply illegal for certain INGOs to operate, uh, they may decide to contract a local organization that is still able to access uh, communities and bring relief. And in this sense, the INGO staff stops taking the risk associated with delivering uh, relief, meaning being kidnapped, shot at, killed, wounded, etc. And this risk is transferred on to the local partners. So that is the typical understanding. But what we saw with um, interviewing local organization is that the reality is much more complex, that they really don't perceive risk transfer in this way. I'd say there are five elements to risk transfer. Uh, the first thing is that it, is, it can be deliberate, but it doesn't have to be. Risk transfer occurs um, without any particular intention from INGO uh, to, to pass the risk. Um, the risk uh, that are transferred also, um, it's not a given set that is transferred because every actor is, is facing different risk according to their profile. So NGOs don't, local NGOs don't face the same risk as INGOs. So the risk that the INGO is facing in the first place can't be transferred to the local organization. They're going to face just a complete different set of risk in the same situation. The third element is, again, around the notion of transfer. It's much more complicated than just transfer because within partnerships, uh, entering in partnerships or throughout partnerships, new risks are created. Um, Entering a partnership with an INGO can actually create more risk for the local partner and compromises the local partner in the eyes of their government or their local population, local communities. So new risk can be created and there were already pre-existing risk before the partnerships that are going to evolve or change due to these partnerships or to other conditions in the environment. Point four. Um, it's related to the movement. Risks uh, are not transferred in solely a top-down manner. Risk can also be transferred from a bottom-up movement um, or from a horizontal perspective. Um, so for instance, local organization that may not be able to uh, do public campaigning around certain human rights issues or any issues that they face related to the program um, yeah, may not be able to do these actions because it would place them at too much risk and expose them too much uh, to risk of repercussions from the government. But therefore, they can ask their international partners to lead a campaign on their behalf. And in this sense, this risk related to activism is transferred up uh, to the international organization. Then it, it shifts a bit the, the rational and the the thinking you have around risk transfer, it asks international organization, oh, what risk can we take on behalf of the local organization, rather than just what risk are we created for them? And finally, last point is about the actors that are involved in uh, risk transfer processes. It's not just NGOs, it's the reflection should really involve donors, because donors create condition in which NGOs work, and they affect the whole environment and the way NGOs conduct um, their operation. And in this sense, they can increase and decrease the risk that staff is taking. And beside donors, there are also communities um, that can be affected. So obviously the do no harm mandate 
is key is a key part of humanitarian action and it shows that NGOs can create risk for their local communities by intervening in their um, in their living environments. And we can also break down if you really want to push the analysis uh, forward, we can also look at risk transfer within NGOs, within different categories of staff, between, for instance, um, staff that is contracting. Uh, when an organization decides to contract a delivery company to do food deliveries, the NGO transfer the risk of being carjacked to this company, to the contractors. Those are some really interesting reflections. Um, I was wondering if you could go a bit deeper, maybe with an example around um, risk transfer and the creation of risk. Sure. I think oftentimes we speak, so as I said, about risk transfer, but we don't think about what new risk can be created within partnerships and by the sole fact of being entering in the partnerships. We have within the interviews uh, done by the researchers in the last um, research projects, we saw that some local organization uh, acceptance with local communities may actually be damaged by the fact that they have started a new partnership with an international actors um, because then they come to be seen as representing foreign interest or representing a foreign agenda. So some local organization really faced challenges uh, in explaining to local communities why were they linked with this international organization or international donor. Um, but this is, this is also the case uh, with governments and some governments may be particularly distressed some local organization because of their links with foreign governments and it can clash with diplomatic interests. That's really interesting indeed. So risk transfer is definitely one to keep an eye on in the research that's coming out. So as we, you know, we think about these, these partnership relationships around security risk management, how does a crisis affect these partnerships? Well, I'd say crisis in general, um, because they put systems under stress um, and they stress relationships as well, they highlight pre-existing problems they can obviously create new ones, but they first and foremost highlight what was already there. Um, if we take the example of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think there are several flows within partnerships that stand out. Um, the first that we've seen, and which is one of the most obvious, is the lack of flexibility and dedicating uh, funding to security risk management. So a lot of NGOs have been have had difficulties to adapt to the crisis because they simply don't have the resources to do so, or they don't have the flexibility to reallocate funding to safety or security. And this is the case because generally there is no budget line for safety and security within budgets uh, for local partners. In the first place, uh, and many other organizations, there is no budget line for safety and security within international organization. So this is a major first flow that, that we witnessed. A second one is the impact of uh, short-term relationship and, and generally the impact of an environment that is obsessed with measuring immediate impact. Many partnerships are short-term project-based arrangements that last for up to a year. And the problem with such 
short-term arrangement, that limits perspectives. And therefore, resources are generally invested in support that can be quickly measured and that can be accounted for with donors, rather than uh, in places where they can actually have a long-term impact and contribute to build or to support, rather, the institutional capacity of local organization. And so right now, a lot of local organizations were not really prepared to face the crisis. One could say that international organizations were not prepared as well, and that would be really, really true. The last challenges and the last flow that we've seen is the lack of communication and lack of mutual understanding between partners. And if communication channels were not good before the crisis, generally they're not that great right now. Um, they can be fixed, and this is a good opportunity to fix them. Because communication on risk between local and international organizations is really essential to ensure that both partners share similar assessments of the situation and therefore can come up with joint decision on how to face all the challenges. Your point on communication is a really strong one. You know, it'd be great if we can talk a little bit more about that. I think communication is really the main point of the research project, that its absence is damaging partnerships so badly and preventing building up effective uh, security risk management processes. There are many obstacles to having honest uh, conversation on risk. And besides honest conversation, it's about having conversation on, on an equal footing between uh, partners. Security issues generally uh, are a sensitive topic and it is difficult for local partners to, to mention them for a variety of reasons. Um, the power dynamics with international organization is further discouraging them from raising their problems because they want to look good in front of their partners because they're afraid to lose the funding. And because generally they rely on these fundings, their livelihoods, their jobs, um, rely on this and they don't have social security net the same way uh, international staff do, um, they are less likely to raise issues. There are also many misunderstandings and assumptions that prevent good communication. Uh, sometimes international actors think that the staff of local organization face less risks because they are from the context and because they're much more embedded. But this is not always the case and local partners still do face so many risks and that's probably why they are um, in terms of numbers they represent the highest number in terms of aid workers killed wounded uh, or kidnapped um, there are also assumptions on the fact that they don't know how to manage risk at all that they don't have the sufficient knowledge so a lot of patronizing behaviors on behalf of uh, certain ingos mm -hmm. um, and all of this contributes to, to preventing good uh, dialogue. And I was just in, in a webinar and uh, listening to the director of uh, Basme and Zetune, a uh, Lebanese organization, who is saying that even though there are conversations with international partners, there is no real dialogue because there is no real listening. Through having good dialogue and promoting better conversation, this is through such conversation that we will be able to build mutual understanding. So now it's just about the skills on how do you actually hold these conversations when you're not used to them, uh, to have them in the first place. Leah, do you feel from 
the, the research you're doing and the conversations that you've had or listened to, do you feel that there's an openness on both sides to have those conversations to start with? I don't think so. I think, um, I think it's hard to have these conversations. Everyone is always busy. You want to take the time to properly check in and to chat about not only your priorities. Um, so international organizations generally check in about, oh, my local partner, are you fulfilling all um, expectations and the requirements in terms of meeting the counterterrorism legislations? in terms of ensuring that the money you're using doesn't go to fund terrorist groups. So these are the priorities generally we see on the international side. Um, but rarely, I think they are willing to just come in and, and, and just listen and ask and, and encourage uh, the local partners to actually share the challenges. So I think, no, I think on both sides, there is not enough openness, although I think that local partners have been trying and are trying to get their voices heard since so long and they've just been not listened to enough. It was two weeks ago I was in a conversation with them, um, uh, actually he was working for an international organization but uh, with Kenyan and I was asking him about uh, the security issues and challenges uh, that local staff was facing under the pandemic and he was telling me that the first thing he told me was that local staff actually asked much more about international staff safety and that they were much more concerned about international situation in Italy and in the US and that they felt relatively safe. And that was just something I don't know, I never expected to hear. And I was like, oh, well, actually, Interesting. you can, everyone is concerned about everyone, but sometimes you just need to hear it and to make space for them to speak. Yeah, no, but that's really interesting because that speaks to that point you made earlier that I, I, I'm, I come back to, which is the risk goes both ways and maybe some of that perception of risk also goes both ways. Um, so that's definitely a really interesting point. And, you know, as you bring up COVID-19 a bit, I'm wondering as we talk about compounding crises on top of each other, you know, you mentioned the importance of having strong security risk management infrastructure in place. Can you go into a little bit more detail about how organizations can better build those partnerships to manage some of this better, especially in times of crisis like we have now with the pandemic and other crises that might come on top or have come on top for some? Once more, the first thing, uh, the first place to start, I'd say, is establishing good communication channel uh, to ensure that there is more dialogue, good or sound dialogue between partners. Um, this is especially important in times of crisis because there is a tendency of having either not enough, either too much information. Um, but when you have sound communication channels, only the essential information. Uh, is going to be shared and it's going to be able, it's going to enable partnerships um, and both partners to better react to crisis um, and to new information as they come out. Um, so ensuring that communication is, yeah, sound is a main point. I'd say ensuring that structures are flexible. When structures are too rigid, no one can adapt. And I think the humanitarian environment 
is characterized by the fact that it's always facing new crises, that things are always changing. So for this, you have to have some flexibility within the arrangements you're creating. Um, and you have to have flexible security risk management processes um, as well. This relates as well to just autonomy and capacity building slash capacity sharing. Um, to have flexible systems, you must be able to trust each other's competency to react to the crisis. Um, the more control you have, the more the slower your response is going to be. Uh, but when you trust the other person to the other partners to act correctly, then you don't need all these extra layers of uh, control. And yeah, I think we, we love a little bit, there is a little bit too much of control within the humanitarian sector in many situations. Um, trusting each other's competency also just facilitate decision-making and avoid having too many layers of decision and checking with so many different people before making any decision on how to react to crisis. And especially when quick action are needed, this is uh, really important. And then I'd say just being open in terms of both partners sharing getting to know each other, getting to know each other's system so that there is complementarity in action and no overlap and that they know when can they rely on each other um, and when can they ask for help and when can they share some challenges and difficulties. That's great to hear. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you mentioned the a little bit of risk sharing, um, do you have anything to add to that risk sharing piece that kind of came really clear in your point you were just making? Yeah, I think risk sharing is a, is a fancy term. Uh, I think the humanitarian sector really loves it because it sounds great. Um, but really what we saw in our research is that it is an aspiration and it doesn't quite describe the reality of partnerships right now. Right now, the reality corresponds to risk transfer, which I've already explained. Um, but to move towards risk sharing, I think there are three main elements. The first would be that everyone understands that both parties understand which risks are involved in the partnerships. That means having a thorough and correct risk transfer analysis and also risk assessment that really understands the uh, specific risk that each partner faces according to their profiles. The second element is once we have, we know the risk, all the risk, is to share decision making on how to approach the risk. So both parties must be able to say no, to refuse to implement certain programs if they feel their safety or security would be compromised. It's really important that local partners must be able to refuse. Uh, and given the power dynamics that structure many partnerships, it's not a given that they will be allowed to say no. And then if both parties decide to accept the risk, then both parties should be equally involved in deciding over the mitigation measures, which one are the, the preferred one. Uh, and finally, I'd say that, yeah, the need is to back the talk with actions and with resources. Because if you have preferred, you agreed on the preferred mitigation measures, but you don't have the resources to actually implement them. And there is no actual sharing of risk. And this is where a lot of improvements can be, can be done. In the localization agenda is often criticized for the fact that there is no walk uh, behind the talk. 
and that's that's another aspect where the credentialization agenda can do better. Interesting indeed. I was interested to hear a bit more about uh, some of the assumptions um, of the international community and and some of the gaps that might exist between the international NGO community and the local NGO community, particularly when it comes to a crisis? I think the place where it is most visible, the differences uh, in perspectives, is in context um, analysis and understanding and risk analysis. So oftentimes, international organizations are going to either underestimate the risk or overestimate the risk because international media attention tends to focus on one crisis at a time um, this impacts the priorities that international partners and donors have but this may uh, be very different from the reality uh, seen from a local perspective so if we take um, the Colombian case study from the research we've recently done, there is um, a narrative at the international level that the conflict has entered a post-conflict phase uh, because a peace agreement has been agreed. However, uh, interviewees locally felt that the conflict was still very much active and that many regions were still very dangerous and too dangerous to operate. However, because um, international, the international community declared that the, that the conflict had passed, um, there was a decrease in funding allocated to security and less attention given to these issues. And INGOs just redirected their resources elsewhere, INGOs and donors actually. Um, mm. And with COVID-19, there is a sort of the same phenomenon because international attention guides resources and is now focused on health-related uh, risk. However, there are still various other crises going on. And at the local level, I would say that probably there is always compounding crises. But if you look at the smaller level, there are so many, so many risks that overlap and so many um, difficult situations that piled up. Um, and so we can see that there are still security risks that endure right now, that the pandemic hasn't stopped uh, non-state armed groups uh, from continuing their activity. So we've seen attack, attacks uh, against MSF clinic in Afghanistan, in South Sudan, recently in Central African Republic, I, staff, uh, NGO staff were kidnapped as well. Um, and there are other various safety risks that continue to, to occur uh, under the pandemic. And that is why it is really, really important to listen to local accounts of the situation and to cross-check information provided by global media or global NGOs with actually local accounts of what is going on in the ground. That's definitely a good point you're making. I'm wondering, does the research speak to some strategies for local partners and local voices to kind of open that conversation a bit more, to, to make it more sustained, actually, in the eyes of the international community? Well, there are many ways to tackle this issue. One strategy, if it is one, is simply to include, to ensure that local actors are included in all the global high-level meetings that are happening everywhere. So within mm -hmm. the Grand Bargain, um, or any other strategic meeting gathering donors, 
INGOs, governments, local representatives should be able to participate. And by being able to participate, we mean that probably other organization entities will have to cover the fees to attend the events and include support if translation is necessary, because language is a major issue in terms of breaking this conversation. Then I'd say um, once these global conversation happen, dissemination should, ha uh, should also take place. And the key takeaways from this conversation should be translated. Local actors should be able to learn about this conversation that are going on if they are to get involved in them. Another aspect that is closely related to this is simply to support coordination and collaboration between local organizations. So ensuring that there is a strong national voice Obviously, being a group makes it easier to carry on messages and to make your, your voice heard. So there are many platforms that exist, such as the South Sudan Forum or many, many others. But these, these platforms should be strengthened and should be supported. And then finally, in terms of just establishing good communication and sustainable communication between uh, partners, I'd say that it's about building structures and building good human relationships. It's trust, trust is necessary to have this communication and trust requires commitment and real concern on both sides. So it's about showing up and ensuring that international organizations plan times regularly and consistently and not only just in times of crisis to talk with them about the risk that it faces, the challenges, also their successes and recognize their successes when there are some. Building on the success point, you know, as you talk about the importance of having those strong infrastructure, those strong communications in place, do you have some examples of some positive ways this is playing out or has been done? Well, we've seen um, one good example that is highlighted by the research is the relationship between uh, Caritas Germany and Caritas Ukraine. And I've just heard in the last webinar, uh, another great relationship between uh, Caritas and uh, local organization Myanmar, uh, KMSS. In both cases, the good examples and the good learnings that we can take away are that Caritas really developed long-term relationships that were not just project-based for one year. They invested in supporting the capacity of local partners through programs that lasted for four years and that they were then renewed for another four years, et cetera, et cetera. So long-term relationship was a key aspect. Another one was the fact that they had continuous relationship. In the case of Caritas Ukraine and Germany, one consultant was contracted to go to, to Caritas Ukraine and build with them the local capacity and security risk uh, framework that were adapted to their needs. And because there was this continuous relationship throughout the years between these two individuals, the Caritas Ukraine security focal point and these consultants, then they were able to share the challenges and they were able to trust each other and they were not afraid of saying when things went wrong. And the last point I would make on, on the benefits and the value of the Caritas approach was that security was an integral part of the partnership arrangement that was developed with our partners. And so there was a lot of collaboration between departments. There was not solely 
partnership experts that were involved with really security, HR, and partnerships that work together. And senior management was supportive of um, this progress. I'd say looking at Caritas is a, is a good place to start. Yeah, so it sounds like this is, this is an organization-wide strategy that really has to be carried forward. Yeah, I think Caritas' approach is, is kind of ideal in the sense that it was an organizational-wide um, approach to partnerships and to reinforcing the security capacity of local actors. But then in organization, when you don't have this integrated approach, it is still possible to see progress. And security departments can already do a lot. They can advocate within their own, within their own organization to have more fundings for local partners. And they can already start building new relationships with the local actors, ensuring that, for instance, training are um, not given only in capitals, but in field location so that everyone can access them or sharing with other organizations when they are organiz organizing training so that it doesn't have to be only one NGO that responds, but different NGOs can also collaborate with each other, uh, the security departments within different NGOs. I mean, there are many, many other places, many networks that are really interesting to, to look at. The START network uh, is doing a great job. Um, ICVA is doing a great job as well. Um, the NEAR network, there are so many different places to look at. Sounds like that's a great opportunity for a lot of cross-collaboration to take place indeed. Yeah, and probably the solution is going to have to be collective and it's going to have to involve pooled funding. That's definitely um, a good point as you talk about funding and what the role of that is in supporting these kind of initiatives. So Leah, this has been a really dynamic conversation to hear a lot about the opportunities that partnerships bring, um, the importance of communication and risk transfer. I'm wondering if you can share some, some takeaways that you might have for us today. I'd say because this whole series is about compounding crisis, um, I think that it's it is a good good time to look at all the learnings that security risk management can bring to the whole sector in terms of risk management in general. Um, that members of our forum are experts in the sector, so it's just a good time to engage in more conversation with them and to break silos within organization and between organization. If I take more perspective on it, uh, I'd say that there are two things that are really needed uh, to better respond to crisis. Uh, the first one is about to stop emergency thinking and the second is to start being a bit more humble. It is legitimate to feel a feeling of emergency and crisis but that doesn't mean that we have to act uh, under panic mode. It is even more important right now to take a step back and to see that even if it is true that change needs to occur quickly um, and that funding must be made available right now it is also key to think about the long-term impact that all our actions are having. And it is not a reason because we are under a crisis to continue using bad habits. It's rather an opportunity to try new ones um, and ensure that we are providing a support that is adequate and sustainable and that we are acting in solidarity with each other. And the second point on more humility is that Crises are a moment of uncertainty for everyone. Everyone is struggling, um, but everyone has also potential insights 
to to bring and it's only by acting together that we will be better uh, better able to overcome the crisis and we need to recognize that local partners have skills they have capacity uh, they have solutions to problems so it is time to question your arrangements and don't rely on your knowledge uh, don't assume what risk our partners facing you just ask them and assume that you're going to make mistakes but it's not an excuse for not trying to innovate in terms of solution. Uh, I don't feel these lessons are revolutionary. Uh, collaborating on equal terms, being flexible, committing resources, listening. But I think that implementing them systematically uh, could actually bring revolutionary change. And that's what we need. So Leah, I understand that you have some um, additional research or tools that might come out um, to accompany the research. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what we have to look forward to. Yes, yeah, so we're very excited uh, about the publication of the first research project, which is going to be released in September uh, 2020. And we've decided that we uh, are going to be working on a toolkit um, that is addressed at both local organization and international organization and will provide them tools on addressing the issues that have been identified in the research. So issues such as communication barriers or conducting joint risk analysis and joint risk assessment or risk transfer analysis. So that is something else to look out for. That's great. That's really good to hear that there'll be some additional resources available for organizations to really take these things forward. Leah, thanks so much for joining us and for a really interesting conversation and an important one. I know we're all going to be excited to read the, the full research report when it comes out and to continue to follow the development of the toolkit. Thanks again. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, very happy to have been part of this conversation and to continue it.